Hey, we got our banter of truth back this week, even though Joey is still under the weather, still dealing with the vid. He's got the Joe vid, uh, which is a little bit more uh, uh, excruciating than COVID because Joe is a baby and he whines and everything is to the nth degree. So I do want to ask you though to continue to be praying for Pastor Joe. I do miss him, haven't talked with him uh, or been able to be face to face with him. And so uh, it's been different, but we still have uh, our guest co-host for this week. We're, we're continuing Presby Week here at Doctrine and Devotion. And so we got Nick Batsig is still with us. What's going on, Nick? Yeah, it's a Presbyterian takeover, uh, buddy. I don't know about a takeover. Yeah. I don't think I ever agreed to a takeover. What I agreed yeah. oh, to yeah. was oh, let's yeah. have some fun <laughs> as brothers in Christ who are aligned on a number of different things. And we That's have true. disagreements on certain things. And uh, But one of the things that we are aligned on, actually two things, is confessionalism and the awesomeness of Pastor David Strain. Yes. I think we're aligned on those two things. Yes. Are we not? That, that, I, I, yeah, I think you're you're speaking my language. Dude. I'm it up. <laughs> so with us today, we've got Pastor David Strain. He's the senior minister at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, originally from Glasgow, Scotland, if I'm uh, remembering that correctly. And currently, I believe you're in Columbus, yes? I'm in um, Columbia, South oh, Carolina. There you go. Yeah, I'm preaching here this weekend. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So that's that's great. I'm really uh, excited to have you on. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think what we want to do is is kind of go through and discuss confessional integrity. Uh, I know that uh, back in June at the PCA General Assembly, uh, you had this uh, this emphasis on that and this discussion, uh, maybe a roundtable discussion, I believe it was. And so uh, I really think, you know, as we go through it, there's there's that crossover between us, right? As, as Reformed Baptists, uh, sure. as, as a Presbyterian, uh, we both value confessionalism. Now, we might have uh, different uh, things that we uh, subscribe to, but we do believe in the integrity of confessionalism. Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on, and I, I agree that um, as Reformed Christians, we share more in common than we have uh, points of difference. And that actually, there are two confessions. If you're a 1689 uh, uh, Reformed Baptist, our two confessions are siblings, mm -hmm. um, and uh, share what 99 percent of uh, everything they say in common, and uh, maybe slightly less than that but uh, so we we are cut from the same bolt of cloth for sure theologically speaking no absolutely and that's that's why i'm really really excited uh and and as we're talking i i would like to hear you know what role then does whether the westminster or or 69 let's just say that you know what what role does confessionalism uh what does that play for us as reform believers today and historically what what has confessionalism meant to uh, the Reformed Church mm -hmm. historically and now? Mm -hmm. Those are huge questions, of course. And and it, it, the background, in the background to all of that is why have a confession at all, right? So there's mm -hmm. a big tradition in evangelicalism um, in the UK, where I'm from, and here in the United States, maybe even more so, that says, no creed but Christ. We, we just need the Bible. Yeah. Um, my church is just a Bible church. Um, but, of course, every church has a body of doctrine that they teach. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, some random guy shows up and tries to teach something different, 
very quickly you discover that no, this church has a definite idea of what it believes the Bible uh, the Bible teaches. Yeah. And so the question isn't whether you have a confession or not. Every serious-minded Christian who reads the Bible and thinks about what it says and what it means has a confession of faith, has a theology. The question is, is it written down or not? Has anyone else, has it been vetted by the church across the ages? You know, Christians have been reflecting on the Bible and its meaning for two millennia. And so, generally speaking, it's pretty sensible, it's wise, it's godly, it's humble to find out what our fathers in the faith have said about the Word of God and uh, to compare Scripture with Scripture, of course, and to scrutinize what they're saying in the light of the Scriptures. But, you know, if no one has said it in two millennia, it's probably not correct. And our creeds and confessions give, uh, give us access to the collected wisdom of the whole Christian church mm. um, and, and godly, godly humility should approach um, that collected wisdom with a desire to learn from it yes. rather than you radical individualists and yes. saying you know, we're going to reinvent the wheel for ourselves. That, that's a disaster waiting to happen. Absolutely. I mean, I see that often, especially in, uh, at least in, in, in our circles as Reformed Baptists, young Reformed Baptists coming out of seminary, thinking to themselves somehow in their arrogance and pride, I know better. Right. And, and, and I, I really struggle with that. Uh, and even I, and I say that as I struggle because uh, I w used to be that individual that would approach things and, and, and say exactly what you just said. Well, no creed, but Christ. And I just need the Bible. And uh, without seeing and recognizing the the wisdom and, uh, and the immense wisdom and how much thought, how much thought by all these uh, brilliant individuals who God used to craft succinctly right. and, and and something that's memorable and beautiful uh, for us today. Right, and, that, and as you read our confessions, um, the great Reformed confessions of the faith in particular, you know, so it might be the Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Confession and Catechisms or the London 1689 Confession, when you read them, they are, they are dripping with Scripture. They're often yes. articulating truth in the language of Scripture, yes. or they've found uh, the vocabulary that the Church has developed in historical debates over the meaning of God's words to be helpful in summarizing the truth of Scripture. They often come with copious Scripture references, which you can follow. And as you examine and wrestle with what our confessions say, again and again we discover them driving us back into the words and providing great light, great clarity on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Mm. Um, so, so that's a big part of it. You know, when you think about the Reformation, there were um, all sorts of movements in the Reformation, not just the magisterial Reformation under leaders like Luther and Calvin, but there was a radical Reformation, some of which got pretty crazy, pretty wild and uh, reinventing Christian theology in in some very dangerous directions. Mm. And so there was a recovery of the ancient heresy of Arianism, for example, de denying the deity of Christ. Um, the, the, in the 17th century, you have Sassanians beginning to emerge who said, we believe only Scripture. They have a very high doctrine of the Bible. 
And they said, we're only going to believe the things that the Bible expressly says. And so they denied the doctrine of the Trinity mm. completely. Um, and uh, so all of these movements appealed to, quote, the Bible alone. And so the question isn't, do you trust the Bible? The question is, what does the Bible teach? Yes. And as soon as you've asked that question, you are pushed into not just the exposition of the text, but trying to put text together on different topics to say, in summary, this is what the whole Bible has to say about God, about man, about sin, about salvation, about Jesus, about death, about life after death, and about the church, and, and so on. What you're doing is you're articulating a confessional theology. David, that is so helpful. And, you know, I often think about how frequently we hear people say, but the confessions are man-made documents. They are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I, I remembered a story that David Calhoun told in his, he was talking about the life of William Childs Robinson, the old uh, professor at, I think it was Union Theological Seminary or Columbia. And and one of the students said, Dr. Robert. Uh, Robinson, are the is the confession of faith perfect? To which he said, no, but their theology is better than yours, and you can correct yours by <laughs> reading theirs. And now, now how, I want to hear from you, because that's a common refrain today, isn't it? That the guys will say, well, right. I mean, it's a man-made document. It's not the Bible. And we, look, it's not the Bible. We're not adding to Scripture. So how do we help people understand the usefulness of the standards when, when yeah. we're saying they are giving us the sense of Scripture, but it's not Scripture. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I think people say, well, it's just a man-made document as a way to dismiss it. Mm. But I want to say to them in response, you have preachers, right? You, you still think that we should explain right. the Bible, don't you? Mm. You have Sunday school, but you read Christian books, don't you? Uh, you um, we need help, and the Bible actually commands us to expound the scriptures and to proclaim the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In fact, I'd go further than that and say that the Bible teaches that we should have confessions. So, so, so the Bible itself requires that it be an interpreted book. Mm. The Bible demands not just that we repeat the phrases that we find in the text of scripture, but that we expound the scriptures and we bring together under headings relevant to particular topics the teaching of the whole Bible so that we have mm. clarity. Um, I think there are a couple of places actually where the scriptures by apostolic example and maybe even by express command uh, provide for us a scriptural platform, a scriptural foundation for uh, confessions. So, for example... You have an early confessional statement in Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 9 and 10, uh, where Paul says that we are to believe in our hearts that God raised Christ from the dead and, quote, confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. And it's, all the scholars agree that Jesus is Lord is probably the earliest creedal statement, verbal mm -hmm. statement mm -hmm. of Christian doctrine that we have extant in the scriptures. Um, but, you know, we find Paul particularly urging Timothy to 
make sure that all the teaching in the church in Ephesus, for example, agrees with the pattern of sound words yeah. and the teaching that accords with godliness. And now Timothy only has the Old Testament scriptures. He has Paul's apostolic training and instruction. It seems clear to me that Paul and Timothy have in common a body of doctrine, a pattern of sound words, or the good deposit entrusted to him, as uh, Paul puts it in Second Timothy chapter 1, uh, that, that Timothy can summarize and articulate and use as a standard by which to judge the teaching of the false teachers that were plaguing the church and also to train elders, which was part of his charge. Uh, Jude 3 talks about contending earnestly for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. The definite article there means the body of doctrine that mm -hmm. everyone agrees upon that is either true or false, you know, that's either this, this correct that we can use to assess whether other things are true or false. Um, in other words, these statements of Scripture compel us to do more than just repeat Bible language. They compel us to articulate it in a way that we can use to assess orthodoxy and soundness. Uh, otherwise, we would be riddled with heresy, and no one could ever say to anyone, that's not right. As right. long as you say it in Bible language, you're fine. And the church, the church would be uh, hopelessly compromised. Hmm. David, that's so good. And this might be a little controversial, but B.B. Warfield has a shorter essay on the Trinity. It's in his shorter writings that PNR published. And he explains that we don't find, for instance, any explicit allusions to the Trinity or explicit statements calling God a triune God. And, and that as the church developed the doctrine of the triunity of God, that the, the formulations that the church was developing, especially in the, the early church, that they, they were giving us the sense of scripture. And Warfield goes so far as to say in that essay, wherever we have the sense of scripture doctrinally formulated, we have scripture. Would you go that far right. to say if the, if, yeah, I would if actually. Go oh, ahead. go ahead, David. Yeah, Sorry. Go ahead, Nick. I was just well, going to yeah, say, just, if, if, indeed it's, if indeed it's giving us the true formulation of what the totality of Scripture teaches, in so much as these doctrinal statements can do that, they, they are not just giving us the sense of Scripture, they are telling us what Scripture says. Right. So, so uh, Huldrych Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, Zurich reformer, um, first-generation reformer, um, and, and his successor, Heinrich Bullinger, wrote, Bullinger wrote the Second Helvetic Confession. And the Second Helvetic Confession, there's a, a chapter heading in there on, on Scripture in which it says, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Mm, mm. Now, that's a pro is provocative. That's put provocatively on purpose. But what he's saying is, when the preacher or when the church in its creeds and confessions faithfully articulates what the scriptures say, then that church, that statement, even if it's in other language than the text of scripture itself, has all the weight and authority of the scripture itself. So that the preacher, when he says, look at verse 1, this is what verse 1 means, and this is what verse 1 should do in your heart and in your life, 
if what he says is in fact what verse 1 means and is in fact what verse 1 should do in your life, God himself says it to you and it has Mm. all the authority of God speaking in his word. The preaching of the word is the word and that's true for creeds and confessions as well. So to go back to your thing about man-made, just quote, just the man-made document, well, yes and no. Yes, certainly. Men put this together seeking by the help of God's Spirit to do the work of the church in expounding the scriptures mm-hmm. and articulating the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But insofar as what they say faithfully articulates the teaching of the Bible, it has all the authority of the Bible behind it. And so we need to be a little cautious about dismissing the the received confessions of the church mm-hmm. as, quote, nearly man-made documents. So as as we're looking at that, then, I, I mean, I think we're, you know, you're talking then about one of the present challenges I think we see in confessionalism today, correct, is is the the body or believers um, dismissing confessionalism to their detriment. For sure. Yeah. One of the best um, little essays on this is uh, by James Bannerman. He has an, a magnificent uh, book called The Church of Christ, mm-hmm. uh, The Banner of Truth. Yep. Yep. It's, a, it's Presbyterian, but but all Reformed Christians, even even Baptists. <laughs> <laughs> well, we well, love, even, we love, even huge amount in there. We love Banner of Truth. We love, <laughs> we, we love, we love Banner of Truth and everything they put out. <laughs> they also love Banter of Truth. Well, yeah. Oh my goodness, <laughs> David. I don't know if you've ever seen that but, logo for Banter of Truth and the Banner of Truth logo. It might be the same, except it's Pastor Joe and I in robes, one holding scotch, the other holding a cigar. <laughs> Well, <laughs> let me commend Bannerman to you, the Church of Christ, because it is fantastic. And there's a chapter in there on confessions and why do we have them and what's their use. And if, if you'll give me 30 seconds to do it, I can sum up the big pieces of I what would he love says that, in there. In, a, in addition to the scriptural argument, he says we need... Um, we need creeds and confessions because the church is called to hold the truth in common together. So creeds and confessions are instruments of unity. Uh, the church is called to teach the truth. So creeds and confessions are instruments of clarity. And we're to witness to the truth. And so they're instruments of fidelity, um, faithfulness, both for the sake of church members who need to know what does this church have to say, and the world who need to know what are we all about. So we hold the truth, an instrument of unity. We teach the truth, an instrument of clarity. And, and we witness to the truth, an instrument of fidelity. Mm. And, and, and that, that's a really helpful way to think about why creeds and confessions are so incredibly important. Uh, they hold us together. Uh, we, our unity is not a unity predicated upon a commitment not to talk about things that we that are challenging. You know, our, our unity is not a lowest common denominator unity. Uh, it's not a unity with a commitment to avoid hard topics. Mm. You no, know, our unity is a unity around a shared commitment to truth. Amen. Uh, around yeah. a, a, a shared body of 
doctrinal conviction. So, you know, for my Reformed Baptist brothers, we agree on by far the vast majority of of Christian truth that the church has received as the teaching of Scripture, and certainly on the the nature of the gospel, on the on the character of God, on the work of Christ, we are in lockstep. Mm. And so we have we have a fundamental basis of unity. But of course, particular churches need to have even more specific uh, statements about uh, their doctrine and convictions that go beyond just shared convictions on the big things. We need to have agreement on baptism, on church government. And so while Presbyterians and Baptists end up in different places on that, our churches would be a complete mess if, as a Presbyterian church, we couldn't say, here's what we believe and why, and as a Baptist church, you couldn't say, here's what we believe and why, our churches would be constantly splitting and dividing. Mm -hmm. So our confessions allow us to say, no, look, here's our public declaration of conviction for everyone to see, and all our elders, all our staff, all who are charged with teaching the Bible will stand here in unity around these convictions. We hold the truth in common, and it helps us teach the truth with clarity and assess, and it, allows, it empowers the church member mm-hmm. to scrutinize the teaching they hear from the pulpit and to say, that's not what we believe. Mm-hmm. And it allows us to speak for the world. So isn't it amazing again and again and again, no matter what the controversy is, no matter what the newfangled heresy of the day might be, actually, our confessions seem to have, almost as if they've anticipated it, mm-hmm. uh, they're, so, they're so robust. Because they're so faithful to the scriptures, and the scriptures speak to every challenge that confronts the church, our confessions often provide with it, provide us with resources and tools to deal with it. You know, almost almost every heresy that we face today has already has already shown its faith at some other point in some other incarnation earlier in the history of the church. Mm. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses are just ancient islands. Mm. Um, and so on and so forth. And uh, Gnosticism is alive and well all around us. And our, and our confessions address all of that brilliantly and allow us to speak with clarity. That's great. David, when, when we're thinking about confessional integrity, and mm. obviously we are coming from a Presbyterian perspective, and we have the history of the Auburn Affirmation and you know, the sort of lip service that many people gave to confessional integrity at the turn of the 20th century with theological liberalism and, you know, sort of treating this the confession like a perfunctory document that, yep. you know, was merely theoretical. And, th- and that can happen in a Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've, known, I've known of Baptist churches. I had friends that called me years ago really uh, struggling with their Baptist church had gone the way of new perspective on Paul. And mm. these were quote unquote London Baptist confessional churches, not many, but there were some. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that same, that same sort of spirit of lip service can creep into any church that, that formally says we're a confessional church. How ought we to address those issues? I mean, how ought, and that's a big, broad question. I guess let me try to narrow it. Um, 
what should it look like for a church, Presbyterian or Baptist, that that professes to be a confessional church, but the ministers start teaching things contrary yeah. to the confession that they've said their church upholds? How how ought we to how ought they to address that? How ought we to address that? Well, uh, first of all, you know, you need to, it needs to be a positive thing before it's a negative thing, and and actually, mm-hmm. the first danger of confessionalism being undermined is when confession's only role is to stop error. Yes. You know, oh, so we, we wow, forget yes. about treatment confession until there's a problem. And actually you've already created a context to ensure that there will be problems. Your con- your treatment confessions are already dead letters at that point. So so they need to have a positive living presence um, uh, as useful tools in our teaching, in our instruction. So I try, for example, not that I'm a great example of this, but I try in my own preaching and teaching, um, wherever I can to, to quote in the sermon from our confession and catechisms to just to constantly be gently and maybe not always noticed by the congregation, but just to keep before them these resources and tools. Mm. Um, we certainly need to be training every elder rigorously in our theological confession, not just so that they know it, but that they love it. Yeah. That they see its incredible value. What resources and riches we have. It's almost as though we have these, we have this amazing family silver, you know, yes. this extraordinary dinner set, this, these jewels given to us and they just sit on the shelf gathering dust. They're meant to be taken down and used, and not just lying there, uh, you know, as a family heirloom, but, mm-hmm. but something useful in the life of the church. And if it's not presently useful in the life of the church, you're already setting the church up for drift. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing to say. Um, and, and you know, catechize the children, make sure that the elders have read the constitution of the church and know the confession well and love it. Teach it from the Bible. Teach it in Sunday school class. Um, uh, help people be grounded in these categories. Let me tell you a quick story. My father-in-law, uh, who is an elder now in a Presbyterian church in the Highlands of Scotland, was was converted as an adult late in life. Um, but as a young man, um, he was actually taught the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism as a boy in school, if you can believe it, in the public school in Britain, he was taught the Shorter Catechism. It was drummed into him. And uh, he resented it like, like nobody's business. He hated the thing. Didn't understand it. Hated it. Forgot all about it. And then, you know, 20 years later, he gets converted. And all of a sudden, he realizes he has all this truth, all these categories, right, already in place in his thinking, mm, wow. right, right. Uh, so that as he reads the Bible, um, he's able to make connections. He's he's got he's got tools already, um, right there in place that were sort of dormant until that moment when the Lord turned all the lights on and all the furniture was already in place, <laughs> ready to go. Uh, it, it's a beautiful thing, and isn't that isn't that what we want as we as we preach the gospel? 
uh, to our church families, to the children of our church. We, we want to be instructing them. We want young and old to know and to have these categories so that as the Lord works by his word and spirit in their hearts, they have the tools to understand the truth uh, clearly and richly and well. So there's a positive element. Then there's a negative element. And, uh, and, and that is something that the whole church has to do together. Now, we have slightly different church polities, slightly mm-hmm. different systems of church government. But I think it's true to say that every church member uh, should be well taught and should require orthodox, faithful, biblical doctrine from their pulpit. We all ought to be Bereans searching the scriptures Mm -hmm. daily to see if these things are so. There's a problem in a church when the church members relinquish um, all responsibility for the orthodoxy of the pulpit to the elders. Yes. Now, I believe it's the duty of the elders, but it's not the only, it's not only the duty of the elders. Um, and, but speaking of elders, we ought to be holding one another accountable and, and requiring of our elders that we know and love and teach and stand firm to the truth. In a Presbyterian situation, um, we have presbyteries that scrutinize candidates for gospel ministry pretty rigorously on their doctrinal commitments and fidelity to the confession and catechism. And they take an oath that requires them, if at any point their views change, they are to come and on their own recognizance make that change of views known to the presbytery. And the presbytery then is responsible to assess whether or not those views are in line with our confession and catechisms. Um, none of that, of course, can stop a bad actor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Know, right, being, right. being deceptive and, um, and, and saying one thing and doing another. And all of, you know, there's every church in the world, with, no matter your system, um, can't prevent that. But, but if your people are well taught and, and love the truth and the elders, uh, teach and love that truth, uh, there's a good chance that the Lord will be merciful and gracious and keep that church uh, orthodox and sound. And what I love there, David, uh, one of the things you, you hit there was it's not only the responsibility of the elders, right, to maintain that integrity, but the, the, it's also uh, the members of the body. Now, I want to speak to some mm-hmm. of the younger people listening. Because I, you know, uh, sometimes people hear that, at least I find with some of our younger listeners, uh, <laughs> they hear that and then they go on a quest for heresy hunting. And so <laughs> I want to, you know, also address in the same way that we are called to that. We're called to do it, though, uh, in a biblically and and gracious uh, uh, and charitable posture. Right. right. Seeking to understand right. rather than assuming the worst of the individual, maybe seek clarity and going to a brother in love. Uh, and sharing, hey, I right. heard this, and it, it sounds like you're saying this. Mm-hmm. Is that am I, am I off base yeah. here, or did I miss something? And and so make sure right. as we're going through that, uh, we're doing it in in a in a God honoring way. Correct. That's right. That's, that's thank you for that. That's very helpful. And uh, I think any faithful Bible teacher wants. I, look, I love it. I love it when church members come to me with questions. Mm-hmm. So 
something I didn't understand, yes. something that, that, you know, they'll say, Pastor, I, I, you said this, did you mean this or did you mean that? You weren't clear here, or I'm not sure that was right. Can you show me elsewhere in Scripture? Can you? That just, that, that thrills me because it tells me here's a person who really wants to grow. Yes. They really want, yes. they're really grappling with the truth. And they're coming, they're not coming with an accusation. They're not coming to catch me out. There's no personal malice involved. Mm-hmm. But there is a genuine spirit, an earnest spiritual concern. That's a beautiful thing. Now, um, there is something I think, one of the besetting sins of Reformed churches is a doctrinaire, um, uh, a sort of a confusion of knowing a lot of doctrine with actually being godly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and when that happens, what one of the fruits of that, the ugly poison fruits in our hearts, is this 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 sort of judgy, um, inquisitorial, contentious, yeah. Right, uh, right. Um, let's go on a witch hunt. Let's you know sit with our arms folded and a skull on our face as we mm-hmm, as we mm-hmm. judge every word out of this man's mouth. Yeah, and a lack of Christian charity that actually speaks of terrible pride. Yes, um, mm-hmm. and I have you know those people really need to be properly discipled and uh, and helped by humble elders. Who, who love Jesus and love his people and love his truth, um, but who, who don't confuse theological knowledge with holiness mm. because they're not the same thing. Having John Owen on your shelf doesn't make you more like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> they're true. Yes. That's good. I wish David. it did, but it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Nick, did you have something? Well, I was just going to ask David if he could talk briefly about, you, you kind of touched on this with the pedagogical use of the confessions in young people. And Anna and I have been trying to memorize the shorter catechism mm-hmm. with our boys on Sundays. So here, I know, I know you guys are Presbyterian and you guys use big words. Now, for Steve McCoy that's listening, can you define the pedagogical, <laughs> the word, that word? Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to teach our children. No, I'm not, I'm, we're trying to teach our children the Q and A's. Uh huh. Yes, yes. Of doctrine and history. Got, got <laughs> that it. was that was as basic as I could go. No, well, yeah, well, like, talk, um, to, talk to me like I'm five, Nick. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but but David, historically, that was a very big thing, wasn't it? That parents teach their children these things to help. At a young age, right? What you've already touched on. It seems to me like we need to rediscover that. Yes. Don't you think in our day? I, I, I totally agree. I, I um, you know, there's the children's catechism, which is not one of the Westminster standards, but is designed to be a step lower, even much simpler than the Westminster shorter catechism. Um, yeah. that, so in my church, for example, we don't have children's church. But we do have it on Sunday night. So we have morning and evening worship, and we have Sunday evening children's church for very small children. I think up to, I think once you're six, we want you to be in the worship services. But in the evening service, one of our interns sits down at the front under the pulpit, and in our bulletins we have a question and answer from the the children's catechism printed. The whole congregation says it together. The kids gather around the intern's feet and he does a short little Bible talk based on that question. 
And then those kids go to their children's church on Sunday nights where they're taught more from the catechism and given a, a lesson on that uh, while the service is going on. And we do that for various reasons. We want to try to encourage families to come back at night. And when their kids are very small, doing that can be challenging. And so that's why we provide children's church because mm-hmm. we're trying to teach morning and evening worship and Sabbath observance. But we're also trying to instruct in the children's catechism. And we actually, we formally recognize in our worship service when one of our kids repeat, memorizes the children's catechism and repeats it to an elder. And then the shorter catechism and repeats that to an elder. We give them a Bible and we pray for them and we congratulate them and we try to make a big deal of it. Probably mm-hmm. because it is a big deal. It's no small feat to, to do all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, cat- catechesis, teaching, question and answer format, teaching our kids to memorize these answers is, is a lost art. I think mm-hmm. because we've bought into a number of of myths about, you know, people are visual learners, people are, you know, right, I'm right. not sure that those are actually true. Um, right. I think we've just made assumptions about all of that. But memorization is really valuable and ought not to be despised. Mm. And it doesn't have to be an ugly, you know, drill sergeant sort of thing. It can be fun. Yeah. Um, you can You can make a game of it with your kids. You can reward them. Um, you can celebrate big time when they do well in catechism. Um, and you can, you can try to find ways during the week, you know, in, in key moments. You know, there are all these teachable moments we have with our children along the way to say, you remember that catechism we were talking about? That's why this matters, right, in this situation that we're dealing with right now. That's why we're remembering these things. Mm. Be on mm-hmm. the lookout for those moments that help you connect these truths to life. Mm-hmm. David, so I, I, I really appreciate that. And I think one of the things I'm, I'm really taking away here uh, has been your talk about that positive living presence of the confession, right? It's not just there to sit on the shelf to grab when it's time to go to battle, but it's there for your, yep. our enrichment, right? It's there for our, our, for, sure. uh, for our enjoyment. It's, it's there for uh, us to be encouraged and to be built up in the faith. One that was hist- you know, given to us once and for all. Right. Uh, and, right. and I'm, I'm really excited to hear that. I mean, like, so actually, you know, uh, over at Dr. Devotion, we do our Monday episode is typically, uh, we go through the 1689. We do a question um, every week. And so on Monday, uh, so this last, you know, yesterday's episode actually with with Nick on, uh, we did question 96, which is, you know, in God's providence, it was baptism and the Lord's Supper. So it was a great conversation. If you guys haven't heard it, you need to go back uh, and listen to that. Um, but you're right. Like we've lost that as, as we're seeing in our in our listeners uh, and, and our interactions with with those that uh, that engage with uh, with Joe and I, we're finding that lack of understanding that lack of positive living presence in the life of not just uh, uh, not just the the minister, right? Um, but even if it isn't the minister, lacking within the life of the church. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, and one way to one way to do that is, you know, I find our confession to be just really beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. It's rich. And, mm-hmm. and clear and precise, and I, I've used it in my devotional life. You know, to read a little mm, section, yes, to try and turn the vocabulary 
vocabulary of it into prayer. To pray it, to, to, to praise God for it, to take these words that summarize in such clear, concise, rich ways the teaching of the Bible on, let's say, like, for example, shorter catechism question and answer for what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's magnificent. Mm-hmm. To pray through each of those attributes, to, to stop and adore him for who he is. Many, how many of us struggle uh, to, to pause and linger over the character of God in adoration and in thanksgiving in our devotional lives? We rush on to requests yep. and needs. Yep. Here's a way to stop and slow down and go, okay, I'm going to, God is a spirit. That takes me back to John 4, the woman at the mm-hmm. well. God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now I'm praying that the Lord would send me the Holy Spirit to help me worship him in spirit and truth according to his word. And the Father is seeking such that you're pursuing me. Uh, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. So you are the same, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. You keep your promises. I know that because that's what you're like. You don't change. You're a solid rock, permanent, immovable, dependable. Uh, and on and on we can go. And now I'm I'm having communion with God. Hmm. I'm adoring him and having fellowship with him. Uh, and, and my confession has been a real tool to drive me back to Scripture and to drive me toward him. Not so easy to dismiss it yeah. as merely a man's document at mm. that point. No, you know, people who so do good. that, I just let me say this. Well, let me just say this. People who say the confession is just, you know, a human document. I want to go, well, what is it that really fires the engines of your soul? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My suspicion is that these guys who are so dismissive to these to these riches that we have, this gold mine of of truth that we have, mm-hmm. um, are 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 excited by trite, simplistic, mm-hmm. hip, whatever the latest thing is, by church mm-hmm. growth, by you know, you know, whatever the latest celeb- celebrity preacher has put out there, mm. and. You know, there may be lots of good things in many of those books and uh, resources that are available, but you, there's more, much, much, much more. You're paddling around in the shallows when there are depths here yeah. for you to dive into. Yes. You're dismissing it as a human document who cares who needs that. Right. That's very frustrating for me. You know, I just need to interject this real quick because I think a lot of people don't know this about the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter and Larger Catechism. They're technically not a Presbyterian document. They were adapted to be and adopted as such um, with the Scottish Presbyterians, but they were an ecumenical document Mm. that was to set out, um, that was to set out what Protestants believe, at least in part, that was the goal of the parliament and the assembly and the assembly was made up of, you know, I mean, Erastians and independents and Presbyterians. And I I think that's sometimes lost too, that the beautiful truths you're talking about, David, these are the ecumenical truths of Protestantism. This is what 
the, the church on the whole mm. receives as those beautiful, deep, profound biblical truths. So I know that's, sorry right. if that's, that's a rabbit trail. That's, but. that's good. And that, that same DNA is in the 1589 as well. The 1689 mm-hmm. framers essentially took Westminster for that very reason, Nick. Yeah. Because it, they yeah. wanted to signal to the other Protestant, Reformed Protestant in the British Isles that, you know, we are siblings. We are not yes. crazies. Yes. Because yes. though we differ on baptism, which at that time was so controversial, they were trying to say, no, no, we're with you. And so they took they took Westminster and they modified it in places they believed to be more faithful according to their understanding of Scripture. Of course, I, I differ with them on that. Mm-hmm. But that's what they were doing. They wanted to see... Rightly, no, rightly so. Rightly so. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get right, some but, in there. Sorry, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but what oh, I'm really fired. They're never having me back on. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. but no, you're right, yes. David. It was Amen. a signifier Amen. that we're yeah, like uh, that we're on the same team, and and I uh, I am so thankful uh, for you brothers, and I'm so thankful to be able to have this conversation with you guys, uh, just on confessionalism. Uh, because you're right, uh, David talked about it right at the beginning there. There is so much that we have in common, right? And we often mm-hmm. forget that uh, in, in today's culture of you know dividing lines and uh, the hard line in the sand and you're either with me or against me. Uh, the, uh, the notion and, and being able to look across and say, you know, uh, you guys are, are my brothers. And uh, there is so much that, that we agree on and can be unified on um, and to you know, maintain unity because the hope we have. Uh, in in Christ, thank you, uh, uh, David, for coming on. Uh, if people want to follow you online, where can they find you? Well, I'm a bit of a <laughs> technological luddite, I'm afraid. I'm not like Nick Patrick, ubiquitous. He's everywhere. Um, um, uh, you can go to the First Presbyterian Church Jackson website, uh, and you can hear me preach there. Wonderful. I sometimes write for the Gospel Reformation Network. Uh, you can find articles I've written there. You can find me on Ligonier. Um, I've done recently did a podcast actually on a very similar subject with Jonathan Master mm. at Reformation 21. Um, so yeah, you can find me around. Wonderful. Well, thank you, brother. Thank you so much for, for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Uh, well, thanks for- thank you for having me. Yep. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can follow us online on Instagram, Twitter, at Doc and Devo, or on Facebook, slash Doctrine and Devotion. You can head to the website, DoctrineDevotion.com. They can contact us. You can send up for your email blast or hit the store, JoeFoStore.com, and grab some gear. We got that fresh pot every Monday and Thursday. We got blog posts and video content over at the website. And thank you, our all-access subscriber. Later. Later.